This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am here at Vox Studios with Jason Gay, who is, among other things, sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And what else? How else should we describe you, Jason? Guy who interviews famous people for Vogue magazine? Slightly overweight dad could also work. You look fine to me. Um, I could lose 10. Come on, Peter. 10. I saw, not only do you look good in person, I saw you on your video podcast, oh, yeah. which is generally not a flattering look for most journalists. <laughs> the stationary camera. Well, and, are, and by the way, you're... There are people who agree with that. And you were sitting next to Emma Stone, so yeah. brave of you. Yeah. Brave of Emma also to sit next well, to me. Well, she was, a, she was like a couple feet away from you. Overwhelmed by my good looks. How's uh, the, how's yeah, the... yeah. I don't know if you guys over here at Vox know about um, the internet and new media and all this stuff, but over at the Wall Street Journal, we are on the leading edge, baby. And uh, so we're uh, experimenting a little bit with a video podcast, which is, I think, a word I invented for no one watching, but... Um, How's it going? You're too into it? Yeah, too I saw, into it. I saw Emma Stone. Emma Stone was the first. Second was Darren Aronofsky. So I watched the beginning of, of it. Yeah. There was talk about food. You brought him a calzone, so I wanted to try to respond by raiding you the have. box kitchen. Is this the standard uh, green room fare, or have you upped your game for my appearance? That is what a Vox employee eats on a regular basis. It's wow, free. it's amazing. You millennials, your, your, your uh, ability to just burn calories is astonishing, because if I ate this... I'd gain about 13 pounds. Just Not only the, that, but they had healthy cereal, and the, the millennials complained, and they brought in Lucky Charms. God bless those millennials. Uh, we got some iced tea. We got La Croix, of course. We have half of a ham sandwich. Where's the other half? That's I'm shrugging. Through, Kafka. We got sweet potato tortilla chips. I love how everything sweet potato now is like that's somehow a healthier bet. It's like, it's a potato chip! Salt. There's a lot of chips here. It's not yeah. health food. Where's the booze? I have uh, some flavored mezcal at my desk <laughs> that we can drink if you want, but but let's talk first. We, right. we could drink during the yeah. show. That'd Whatever you want. That'd be stunty. Like I mentioned, you're the Wall Street Journal's sports columnist, which is a funny thing to say. Yeah, right? You're it's also, like saying you're like the, the wine writer at Sports Illustrated or something. The Wall Street Journal used to have great wine writers. They, which they have indeed, yeah. But you're a great sports columnist, so it's super exciting to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you a bit about what you write about to start All right. With. We're week in week two of the the Donald Trump versus the NFL. Mm-hmm. I think, given the events of the other day, uh, we probably won't hear that much about it. But I'm also wondering, um, even if there had not been a massacre in Las Vegas, do you think that the Donald Trump versus the NFL story would be petering out around now anyway, or do you think this thing is going to keep going? I think there's something about football rhythmically that will make this story linger. You know, obviously, it's you know. For all the people who are saying they're going to not watch it anymore, it's still they're the watching. most popular entertainment vehicle in America. Full stop. Nothing comes close. Uh, so, you know, it's an important cultural moment each week. And the fact that it goes away for like four or five days, I mean, I know it's Thursday Night Football now. But, you know, it, it comes up on the weekends, goes away, comes back. There's something about the pulse of that, which I think lends itself to having a story linger. I think, you know, obviously had not the horror and... Las Vegas, obviously Puerto Rico, happened over the last couple of days. I would not have been terribly shocked had the president uh, weighed in about this one more time, especially because the protesting was diminished. In, right, so he uh, can count that as a victory, right? Yeah, so I thought he would take a, you know, quote-unquote touchdown dance or something uh, out of the fact that fewer players were protesting. Uh, in uh, This is week four, but this was week two of Trump versus the NFL. Uh, that didn't happen. You know, cooler heads prevailed, which, you know, 
we know it doesn't always happen. Uh, but I would not be surprised at all for this to come back around. I mean, you know, we've seen this president in action long enough to know that no grudge goes away entirely. And you think it comes back in part because Trump exit on, not because it seems like the well, the NFL wants this to go away, right? And the networks probably aren't happy about it either. I think the business interests of the league surely would like it to go away. I don't think it's going to go away as a public flashpoint, as something that people want to have a conversation about, or at least a significant number of people want to have a conversation there was, about. There was a suggestion the first weekend that the pregame show was doing better than the, the games themselves. I believe that's true. Yeah, I don't have the numbers ahead of me, but those pregame shows, you know, which are usually just sort of banal chit-chat about right. what's coming up. Sort of suggests that people were interested in the the. What's it, Terry Bradshaw going to say? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah or, no, and or they were tuning in to see if people knelt or not, right? I mean, I, I, yeah, that that part of it, yeah, the pregame uh, show, you know, I think of as the, you know, the 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 the, the middle aged guys in suits sitting around like bantering, like those ratings went up, but also games did something that they don't traditionally do, which is to show the national anthem, and this is not part of the, you know, typical television ritual to show you who was up and who was down at the national anthem. Right, you normally don't settle it on the couch and say, I can't wait to watch the national anthem. No, normally the network's trying to sell you something. They're like, here's some Duracell batteries, you know? So does your reaction, does that mirror sort of the general interest in this topic? Are you getting a lot of, uh, you've written about it a few times now. It's a very hot button. Yeah. It is a topic that readers are very much engaged on. I am surprised and heartened by the volume of people who feel like there is a space here for thoughtful protest and to hear out the players who have made a decision to do this. But I can't lie to you and say that there isn't also an abundant, almost a landslide of people who are, you know, feel it's an act of disrespect and reject it entirely. And, you know, there are all vo- all sorts of volumes on that. Um, you you you, you- to get nerdy here for a second, you're behind the paywall, right? At the journal, can I read you for free? If I'm an internet first person? click free, Pete. Uh, the I'm way that we do it, it is what I read is uh, we allow you to uh, we allow you <laughs> we 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 would love you to um, read us in any capacity. Uh, so if you someone shares something on social media, if you say, "Hey, yeah. look at this terrible Jason Gay column I just read. Look at what a piece of junk it is," uh, you can click on it and read it. Uh, and that applies to Twitter and Facebook. And so when I post something on either one of those platforms, anybody coming to it can open it. So, so yes. your, your, your reaction is not limited to Wall Street Journal subscribers, which would be a very specific slice. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, Wall Street Journal writer, uh, readers are our bread and butter, but, but these have a much wider platform. Even before Trump versus the NFL, there's been an ongoing discussion post-Trump, or I guess when Trump was elected, about sticking to sports, if you're a sports <laughs> yeah. media person, and whether or not you should do it, which you've also written about a bunch, yeah. and we saw it like a flare-up a few weeks ago with Jamel Hill. And again, this is shorthand for an argument, I guess, that says, if you're writing about sports, you should only write about sports and nothing else except what literally what happens. Stay uh, in your lane. Stay in your that's lane. That's the line, right? Yep. You think that's ridiculous? Yeah. I've, I'm quoting ridiculous. you here. Politics are entangled with sports at every level. Who you play with, where you play, who you get to play for, if you get to play at all, and so on. So you can't untwine these things. Are you sympathetic to people who say, look, I just want to watch football or whatever sport I'm watching? Sure. I mean, I understand the impulse. Like, this is going to be, you know, this is presumably entertainment, and I just want to watch, you know, a terrible Dolphins-Jets game. Like, I get that. And not have to have part of the telecast become uh, a conversation about a much headier topic. However, 
it just sort of like our ability to deny a very lengthy history of sports at all levels. And I really do mean all levels, you know, collegiate sports, professional sports, high school sports, kids sports. You want to tell Little League is political as hell. But to deny the, 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 the long, long history of social activism and sports in this country is just crazy. And I can't believe we're actually, you know, reverting to some sort of antiquated argument about how sports cannot actually be synthesized at all with, uh, with uh, politics and that, you know, because you're a professional athlete, somehow your opinion is invalid. I just, it's, I just reject it completely. I mean, I think it's so much more interesting. Right, that these guys are are actually have opinions and are expressing them. Um, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that the NBA guys are much more unspoken than the NFL guys. Well, there's a reason for that, I believe. I mean, I think that with the NFL, I mean, let's go to the NBA. LeBron James is arguably the most powerful athlete in, you know, maybe the United States and maybe even you know one of the most powerful athletes on the uh, on the planet. And the reason is he's he's empowered. He knows who he is. He's a person who you know, has a remarkable amount of leverage within his sport. And he knows that, you know, if LeBron James wanted to quit and start his own basketball league, it would be immediately viable. He's not somebody who is waiting with held breath to get approval from a team or from a league. You know, so that's true power. The NFL, just by the way that it is structured, it is not the land of great guarantees and contract. You know, there are no the, guarantees for the most part. Well, right? there are, you know, people get signing bonuses and so on, but very few people are promised tomorrow in the NFL. In fact, the famous joke acronym is NFL stands for not for long. Yeah, I don't think people bring this up enough. You, you blow out your knee, you're done. Bye. There's no like, oh, that's too bad. Like, you know, uh, Peter got tennis elbow. We're going to still have to pay him, you know, $145 million. It's like, Peter, you're out of luck. And. That says to me that some of the actions of these individual athletes are quite courageous. And I know it's anathema to people to suggest that folks who are paid oftentimes millions of dollars to play a sport are somehow courageous. But it's the truth. You know, the NFL athletes, because they literally can lose their job and Colin Kaepernick is – Sure, absolutely. I mean, and and if you extend it to the actual situation with Colin Kaepernick – I mean, it's not hard to look at that scenario and, you know, say maybe this did impact Colin Kaepernick's uh, football livelihood. Yeah, I don't think people are, are, are really realistic about it. The, the other thing that strikes me about, about the stick to sports argument is that the mode of talking about sports, right, sports radio, the fake heated up argument about topic A, B, and C for the day, right, that's now the entire media landscape. Right, that's the internet. Right, that's the rest of TV. Right, so sports has sort of brought that mode of discussion everywhere else. That's really funny. It's true that you know, quite literally, you look at something like uh, "Pardon the Interruption," which was the famous you know sports show ESPN did with is the famous sports show they did with Wilbon and uh, Kornheiser. I mean, that actual like you know Chiron of the topic, 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 you know, stopwatch yep. thing has been ripped off by everybody. Everybody does that now across the dial. And so it's been enormously influential, but I think there is a little bit of nervousness that exists now on the sports side of it. It's undeniable that I think, as you said, that you know teams are wishing this would go away. I think that sports networks is not their favorite thing either. Sports networks are very happy to have a debate about Brett Favre, right, or whether Tim Tebow is a good player or not. They they, lo- yeah, they love or, debate. Or, or should so and so be fired or so and so be traded? All that kind of stuff. I mean, that's right up the alley, and they are perfectly fine with a screaming match about that. But there is. Uh, timidity about taking on the big bears. And I was really actually very disappointed. I'm not a big sports 
I mean, a first take watcher. In fact, I'm I'm on record as uh, saying I'd rather be, uh, I think, nibbled to death by um, you know hamsters than watch uh, uh, lots of first take. But I did happen to turn it on the day that Trump really started to go in on ESPN, and. I was just so bummed out that they didn't take they it didn't out. I was it. like, this should be like Christmas morning for you guys. You're like sitting there talking about how like you are the only people who tell it straight in sports. And then you're just not even taking on the fact that the president of the United States is bashing your network. Now, I totally get the corporate instinct here, right? They're saying like, stay away, stay away. But like at a certain point, you have to kind of put on your, you know. They would say because it's about ESPN, right? Not because they're afraid to talk about politics. But, uh, oh, but they'd but be unhappy about it there's never been a regardless. more self-referential yes. uh, a media company in the history of the planet than ESPN. I mean, come on. I want to talk more about ESPN, but let's hear from a fine sponsor who's not afraid to sponsor a controversial show like this. We'll be right back with Jason Gay. Recode Media is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, who has a question for you. What if hiring could be easier? What if it was more streamlined, less time-consuming? So even if you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work. They notify qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you get the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. That sounds scary, but it's good. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just a day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire! Exclamation point. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Zero dollars. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That way, they will know that I sent you to ZipRecruiter. One more time at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. We're back here with Jason Gay. We're jumping right back into the red hot center of sports media <laughs> controversy. We will go there. Um, we were talking about ESPN a second ago. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this in one of your columns, and I don't think most people do. This argument about ESPN is too liberal and people are bailing on it. You bring up specifically that, that you think some of that criticism is code for we don't like the fact that there's so many black people on camera at the desk right now. And that that is a reaction to the fact that intentionally or not, um, there's many more people of color and there's many more women on camera at ESPN than there used to be. I think I was a little bit more broad uh, than that. You know, I think what I said, you can't help but notice, and I'm paraphrasing here because, you know, unlike all my brilliant columns, I didn't memorize yeah. this one. But I think it's it's hard to not recognize that at the same time, the uproar about ESPN's quote-unquote leanings has kicked into high gear you know, sort of parallels ESPN's, and I think, you know, good, important efforts to diversify the talent that's on camera. And this means people of color, this means women, this means more voices that aren't the typical, like, middle-aged white guy in a tie that you have seen forever on sports television. They have really made an effort there. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's the reason why people are tuning up, but it's hard to not notice that specific parallel. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm struck by the fact that not only do they have a, a, a black man and a black woman at the, on their 6 p.m. Sports Center show, which is a kind of weird show, because we, we can talk about that as well. But if you watch the promos for it, at least the ones that I saw earlier in the year, they specifically are referencing black culture. And I sort of think, well, if you're a 60 ish 
guy who likes to watch ESPN to get sports scores, you might look at that and go, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're telling me I should not watch this. But the other part of this, Peter, which is so funny, is that these shows, you know, though they're institutions and successful, they're not doing like crazy high volume business. This is not like the Oscars or the American Idol finale. These are, you know, getting reasonable, but not massive ratings right. of people. So I, I suspect that a good chunk of the population that is moaning and groaning about this is not sitting at home at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. and 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 watching all of this daily. This is thing. A lot of this is getting taken out of context, in my view. Yeah, I think most of it's getting taken out of context. Right? I mean, it's the art. I mean, if you're going to complain about ESPN, like you're already in a pretty, you're already in a. Also, like how much politics is actually on the air? I mean, it's politics that a segment of the country, a significant segment of the country disagrees with. So I can get that there's blowback. But it's not like they come on, you know, uh, uh, around the horn and go like, okay, guys, we're going to do tax reform for 10 minutes. Okay, I know it's, you know, a sketchy plan. What do you think, Pablo (laughs) Torre? That's not happening. Okay, they are sticking to their bread and butter 99.99% of the time. And Peter, this has put me into some sort of like bizarre universe. I can't believe I'm actually in a circumstance where I am spending, you know, big chunks of my brain going to bat big time for ESPN. I'm defending ESPN. I'm defending the NFL, a league that has done a lot of indefensible things. This is the bizarre sort of through the looking glass moment we're in culturally where, you know, someone has to stand up and say like, you know, a lot of this is nonsense. Thank you for sitting down and saying that. It's good. <laughs> I'm actually standing now. How did you get into this mission? How did you become a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal? You and I think are roughly the same age. Yeah. And when I was a young person, sports columnist was a big, cool job nationally <laughs> and locally. Was that something right. you aspired to? But what up? are you saying? Are you saying now it's just sort of like this? We can get to the now. Like just I'm, saying, did you grow up like I'm like a horse trainer, like just you know making horseshoes in the back of the barn? Did you grow here? We'll just we'll, 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 we're not we're not in future tense yet, present tense. But uh, you know, like I'm in Minneapolis, Dan Barrero was sure. a big guy, or Sid yeah. Hartman. And if you watched NBA, uh, you learned about who Peter Vesey was. Of course, whether or not you wanted to or not. I um, was a massive sports fan as a kid, like a lot of people who end up doing this are. And you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, and uh, like a lot of kids who read the Boston Globe at the time, that was sort of like I don't know, it was like. A paper of rock stars. The big rock stars in the paper were the sports writers. They were, uh, you know, Will McDonough, Jackie McMullen, Bob Ryan, uh, Dan Shaughnessy, and so on. I mean, all of them were heavyweights. Right, Boston was, sports was bad, but the sports writing was great. It was just loud and chaotic and heartbreaking, and those are all just unbelievably great things to have happen. Uh, actually, when I go back home, my mom is still back in Boston, I don't recognize the town anymore. You know, these kids who have like tendonitis from waving their arms at so many championship parades, I don't even recognize that whole world. I mean, to me, Boston sports was about you know, getting your heart cut yeah. out and stomped on. So, but anyway, it was really, really a, a fertile environment to be a sports fan in, and especially a, a, a someone who liked newspapers. And I was one of those weirdos who liked newspapers. I delivered it, I read it in the morning. This is a true thing, Peter. My father, who was a science teacher, actually got to the point where he was frustrated by my over-obsession with sports. And so in the morning when the paper would come, he would yank out the sports page and put it over the fridge where I couldn't reach it and denied me the ability to look at it until I had read like the metro region section and the business and so on. So in the great tradition of becoming what your parents – specifically what your parents don't want you to become – 
that's how I think I look ended at me up now in this business. Yeah, exactly. Wait, didn't you go to Wisconsin? I did. I went to Wisconsin. I know it's a great Weird. school, right? But they weren't really Wisconsin when we were there. It was kind of like a a low point. I mean, Badger Mania. It was not a sports school when I was there. I left right now. It is now. It is Um, when I wasn't partying. um, I spent all my time at the Daily Cardinal, one of the two newspapers. Oh yeah, were you doing that? Were you? Were you (sighs) at the party? You know, were you writing for the paper? I was doing the the partying. Uh, I wasn't. I was doing the partying. (laughs) I did a a a one second of writing for the Cardinal and for the Badger Herald. Kind of extraordinary to think about it, right? That the I think more than one person did the yeah, there Wisconsin, was a, there was a super left paper and then one we thought was right was actually just a mainstream paper. Right. They were just like socialists. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um the uh, <laughs> but there were two daily newspapers at the University of Wisconsin. How crazy is that? Two daily student newspapers. Glorious. Unbelievable. I we are so old. Jeez. Yeah. I had no background in sports writing before I started doing it. I didn't. I wasn't a journalism major. I'm always embarrassed when people ask this because I'm kind of like I don't even remember what I studied yeah. in school. Like I can tell you where the cool parties were, but I wasn't the guy. I wasn't the person who was like burning the midnight oil in Helen C. White Library. Maybe you were, but no, 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 no. I did not go to the library. Um, um, when I got out of college, I got a job selling ads at a newspaper. It sounded like respectable to me, like, oh, you sell advertising at a newspaper. And I was a horrifying ad salesperson to the point where I think I was on the verge of getting fired. And they said, well, maybe we can convert this idiot into a high school sports reporter. Instead of generating revenue, you could make content for us. Like, instead of driving this business into the ground, we can send him on a notepad over to a Little League game, which is absolutely 100% true. The first story I wrote for money was covering Little League baseball. And now look at you. And then I don't remember. <laughs> Still, the, I'm covering I don't, Little League. I don't play. remember the Wall Street Journal having a sports columnist. Yeah, it's new. Is, were you the first? Are you the first? No, there have been people. Oh my God! It just burped. Please, that's edit yuppie that. water. That no, we're keeping it. Oh, Thank you, God. Lacroix. Right. Yeah. Is it Lacroix or Lacroix? In Wisconsin, we would say Lacroix, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So there you go. The Journal has had sports writing. They've had tremendous sports writing over the years. Sam Walker, who is the founding quote unquote sports editor of the, or the quote unquote founding sports editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section, he was a sports writer for years and years before they gave a full you know section to the paper. But around the time when um, the Journal began expanding into doing you know. The New York region coverage and just growing out their kind of lifestyle this stuff. Post Mur- or after Murdoch, per- post Murdoch purchase. We're going to take on the New York Times. Yeah, but also just like I mean, I think it was a wise idea to try to expand the mission of what the paper could be because you know, as we've seen in the last you know number of years, you know, I don't know the days of people snapping up six or seven newspapers on their way to work like Holly Hunter did at the beginning of broadcast news. I don't think that happens anymore. I right? still see someone reading a newspaper, but it's it's pretty rare. You want to hug them, right? It's I want to just rare. go up and hug them. And, I want to ask them questions. And, yeah, give them the sandwich. I I, I I love seeing someone read a newspaper in print. But, you know, the habit has changed. So I think newspapers need to be broader and they have to have deeper missions. And I think that was what the idea was to do not just sports, but, you know, expanded arts coverage and real estate and all these kinds of things. And to our shock, it kind of worked. When you got the job, was there a mandate we're going to do the journal's version of sports writing or is it just write about sports? Thankfully not. Not at all. Because I never read a Wall Street Journal story in my life, I believe, before I worked there. I remember as a kid, 
the the journal did an investigation into Reggie Lewis's death that I remember reading. I remember that being a big seismic story. So I, I read that, but I was not, you know, you missed some look good at stories. me. I'm not They're in the stories. Venn diagram of your typical journal reader. You know, how much money do you think I have in my pocket? I got six bucks. So I wasn't prepared to do that kind of smart, august journalism. I was prepared to do my goofy little thing. And thankfully, no one stopped me. I think it just, you know, no one read it for the first couple of years. Had anyone actually taken the time to read my idiotic sports column, I think it would have been stopped in its tracks. But it, it went on long enough that, you know, for whatever reason, it's built, you know, a nice little loyal audience. And uh, here we are. Do you think about how that being a sports columnist in 2017 differs from the olden days? I mean, in terms of presumably, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it doesn't differ. Maybe it's still the same. Look, I'm gonna, I'm not giving you scores because obviously you've already received your scores. I'm going to say, I don't. You tell me. I mean, what, do you think that job has changed, or do you think it's kind oh, yeah. of the same thing? Oh yeah, I mean, thing? you know, the whole you know metabolism of sports. You know, writing has changed. You know, the the notion that anyone picks up a paper in the morning. First of all, picks no, up a paper. No, cl- clearly that's gone. But if you're a columnist and you're not tied to scores and you're national, so you don't, you're not required to uh, write about a specific team. Yeah. Do you think that that 2017 sports writing is different than 1997 sports writing, or it's still sort of the same? Taking the pulse of the country, writing about a topic that interests me. I I don't think there's one answer to yeah. it. And, you know, we should have said at the top here, I know this is like, this is writers talking about writing. So if anyone, if we just sound like, you know, there's nothing that makes me want to like hit myself over the head with a fish than listening to writers talk about writing. Here I am. So bring out the fish. I don't think there's one way to do it. I think that like there, you know, have been all sorts of approaches, you know, over the generations. And I take, uh, I spent a lot of time, especially when I started going back and reading some of the older cats who are all incredibly brilliant and make you feel like just dust. But... I just think that what people are looking for maybe a little bit more is interpretation and maybe pushing a story a little bit further down the road. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, Dan Shaughnessy would write a story about the Yankee Red Sox game and you'd read it the next day. I mean, a column about it. And like that, you know, I don't think that that's the kind of thing that right. happens anymore. And and he doesn't do that anymore. You covered uh, – actually, I don't know why. You were in Las Vegas, I assume, for the, the Holyfield. No, Holyfield. The McGregor-Mayweather McGregor. fight, yeah. And you got high. And I got high. When boxing goes low, I go high. One of the great headlines of the year. Thank um, you. I wrote that headline. Good job. That's the, a little credit taking by your columnist here. You know, over in um, Startup Land over here at Box Media, we write our own headlines. Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? Because I never wrote headlines. You I know, think it's a really good idea. You do? Helps you focus your story. Yeah, but do you guys do all those nonsense like SEO headlines? Like, this is an article about Mark Zuckerberg, which you really read for a lot of reasons, including the fact that he talks about Google and Alphabet and IBM. Well, there's the SEO headline. Okay. There's the social headline. Yeah. But the main thing is to write the headline. Yeah. If you can't write the headline, you probably have a problem with your story. I, I feel find. like headline writing is a skill in decline, and maybe your operation is completely the reason. I feel like the days of the artful headline are kind of behind us. Sad but true. What yeah, I'm saying I do, I do is, hate Peter, the that is the best headline anyone's put on a sports column in decades. It's really good. I want to When you go to your me. August editor at the Wall Street <laughs> Journal and say, here's the idea. I'm going to go get high in Las Vegas and write about it, they say – yeah, so I didn't just do this. It was not an act of, you know, Hunter Thompson-style rebelliousness. It Even was though you quote Hunter fully, Thompson in the lead? I did. It was a fully vetted um, <laughs> idea. I, I'll, I mean, quite literally went to my editor, 
and you uh, said Bruce you, Orwell, and I said I want to do this. Bruce, that's Bruce Orwell's job. Then? Yeah, ah. Bruce Orwell from the London Bureau to running sports from, Saint, from the St. Paul Pioneer Press. For that's a true. Yeah. The great Bruce Orwell, um, and to his credit, uh, or maybe not to his credit, he said that's a good idea. Uh, but we got to run it by a few more folks. So it went to the muckety mucks upstairs. Uh, it went to the lawyers, I believe. I was going to say we were talking off camera, off camera, off microphone. Yeah, about off lawyers. Too. It seems like this would be good fodder for a lawyer for a, a good. The day. lawyers they live for this, and there was some conversation with standards. And I think that I'm not revealing any internal secrets to say that the general f- conclusion was that. I had very limited legal exposure, perhaps federal prosecution were someone to decide to make an issue of it, but the damage most likely would be reputational. Was and there anything that said, look, you can do this, but you can't do the following? No, 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 no. They were cool, I have yeah. to say. I mean, like, look, Maureen Dow did it. Yes. I mean, there's, a, a there's a, there, there are now like, you know, five decades of precedence for this. I mean, this is not some sort of like, I'm not crediting myself with some spectacular idea. The reason why I thought it would be fun to do, besides just getting high at a boxing match is the fact that Nevada had just legalized recreational marijuana. And um, it feels weird to talk about this in the context of Las Vegas and everything in the last 48 hours. But, you know, the city now is having this renaissance. There are a lot of um, recreational marijuana stores in and off the strip. So I wanted to do those two things. I wanted to sort of like talk about what's happening there and also go could, to the fight. I, I and I felt tell. like... Was it, was it fun to be high at the fight? Yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah? Okay. I mean, if we really break it down, I mean, so I ate gummies. I don't know if you can say this if your overlords are listening to this, Peter. They're, if they're super had... into talking about recreational drug use. Okay. All right. All right. And plus, I want to know. In fact, I'm, I'm not up to date on this. this whole <laughs> podcast. You should know. He's um, vaping now. I know that. But so I had specifically, I purchased gummies because I didn't feel like uh, smoking a, a dube in the fight was such a hot idea on press row. So I felt that gummies would allow me a degree of subterfuge that I needed. But, you know, with edibles, you got to be a little careful there. You know, you can't exactly... That's what I read in Maureen Dowd's column. This is true. And Maureen, uh, I I think, uh, was kind of the canary in the coal mine of uh, journalism edible mishaps, uh, devoured, I believe, a a milk chocolate bar, which left her prone for... Days. Was there someone with you who was getting – because it seems like getting high by yourself isn't a fun thing to do when you're in public. Oh, my, my God. Experience. When my kids leave the house, it's all I want to do. Are you kidding me? No. No, no. Um, at home, I yes. I get, I, get, I get sitting at home uh, and getting high. But, no, but going I, on, I did have my, my actual column editor, a guy named Jim Cheruzmi, was with me. He's a big fight fan and he was just like, oh, you're nuts. I don't care about you. But I guess he was my um, SOS were I to run into some sort of trouble. But I wasn't anticipating any trouble. Okay. So do you recommend it? Um, sure. Why not? I mean, look, you only get one chance to do this. And, like, I'm going to have to live with the fact that every sports writer I run into for the next, like, 20 years is going to be like, are you going to write about this high? I mean, it's just going to, like, stick with me a little while. But I felt it was, you know, and, and not to sound overly serious, but I thought it was giving the McGregor-Mayweather fight, which was this absurd thing to begin with, the proper – you know, respect that it deserved. It was just kind of a cockamamie production from start to finish. And so going a little bit buzzed, uh, particularly buzzed on the local trade was um, appropriate, know, a- appropriate idea. And you of had- course, and of course, there was this backdrop of, you know, the late, great uh, Hunter Thompson's yeah. fear and loathing, which, you know, 
we should all be so lucky to ever write a sentence like him. There was a story about that fight for, for much of the summer and it was this is the end of civilization. This is the end of sports. This is besmirched boxing because there's some racism and, and homophobia being thrown around. And at one point, you, you wrote about it several times and then said, yeah, this is like a donut. It's, yeah. it's not good for you, but it's not the worst thing in the world. And it is what it is. Well, it was one of those things where, like, you know, if you ask somebody just, you know, in sober company and you say, are you going to watch that fight? I'm like, no, I'm not going to watch that fight. Those guys are grotesque. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And then you look at what the numbers were. And it's, uh, if not the all-time record for pay-per-view, I think it's very close to Mayweather-Pacquiao pay-per-view. It's an all-time boxing handle for how much was bet on it. So they really did kill it from a uh, box office standpoint. And, you know, all the other sort of, you know, let's face it, the ridiculousness and seeminess and just grotesqueness that sort of preceded it didn't really hurt it at all, which is crazy and kind of speaks to where we are culturally at the I, moment. I got to say, because I was only dipping in and out of that stuff, when I actually when I would read about it, it's like, oh, this, this seems awful. But if you actually looked at what they said and did, it seemed like kind of run-of-the-mill race baiting and, <laughs> and homo- it's sort of stuff that is yeah, not I uncommon mean, to, right. in boxing, right? I mean, it's boxing, part, of the, it's part right. of the deal. Yeah. And also, like, you know, individually, McGregor especially, and also Mayweather, they're, you know, a different kind of promotional cloth. We're another sort of, like, you know, major sport athlete, whether it was a, you know, hockey player, baseball player, NFL player to, you know, say the kinds of things that these guys were saying in the build-up to a game. Like, it would just be like, you know, there'd be congressional hearings. But... That's what boxing is, you know, for better and most often for worse. It is a sport that where you make your money based upon promotion. And the best way to promote, sadly enough, is to be ridiculous. I mean, there was a fight that followed and, a fight. And by the way, making, a, making this a fight about race and ethnicity is, is, is an old idea for boxing. Yeah, I mean, and I agree. I'm not endorsing 100% race baiting, that, that that's just the, another, that's the, the racial boxing. element was part of what they were trying to sell here. But there was also a big other part of this, which was, this was like, you know, a showdown of the combat sport. So it was MMA, Conor McGregor, the peak of his profession versus one of the all-time boxers ever. But it was, you know, cartoonish. And look, two weeks later, or three weeks later, there was a unbelievably higher skill, uh, peak of their career uh, boxing match between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin, it was a whale of a fight, ended in a draw, and it got, I think, a third of the audience. I'll take your word for it because I don't know about it. Uh, so yeah. there you go. Yeah, you weren't You've sitting on the couch for that one. Good fight, folks, and they're probably going to fight again soon. I want to talk about Vogue magazine. How's that transition? But first, <laughs> we're going to hear from another fine sponsor. Recode Media is brought to you by The Art of Shaving. You know The Art of Shaving? They've been around since 1996, which means they've been helping guys look their best for more than 20 years. Art of Shaving has your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. If you give someone a gift from Art of Shaving, they will be very impressed. You can ask my brother-in-law, Denton. Super impressed when I gave him some stuff recently. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service. That means they send stuff to you so you can save on your favorite products while never having to worry about running out. My listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code MEDIA. So to get the offer, you go to artofshaving.com, use the promo code MEDIA. It gets you 15% off your first order. Again, this stuff is nice, so you'll like it and or your brother-in-law will, and you get free shipping. Go to theartofshaving.com for the special offer, or if you're the kind of person who likes to go to a store, go to a store, tell them we sent you. 
Back here with Jason Gay, Wall Street Journal sports columnist and also guy who writes about Taylor Swift and Jennifer Lawrence and who else for Vogue magazine? Rihanna. The world's most famous Beyonce. You write big, glossy cover stories. Yeah. That's a good gig, right? You're looking at me with profound shock. Like you can't believe the schmuck you're sitting across from could possibly be put into a- It did seem like that would be the job I would most want for a long time. One of these great celebrities of our era. Yeah, it's a little bizarre, right? You're here in the flesh. Guy guy who's met Rihanna. <laughs> guy who's interviewed Beyonce. It's, You're the it's, second it's guy I've talked to who's, who's yeah, interviewed Taylor weird. Swift. Uh, I mean, you just cut me off when these details get boring. I mean, I did have a background in magazine writing before this. You know, I spent six years working at GQ, which is a kind of nasty sister publication of Vogue. I worked at Rolling Stone. And then I went to uh, the journal as sort of the lark of my, you know, resume. And so I was doing the magazine stuff for a long time. I thought that would be the rest of my you know, career. And then uh, this journal thing happened, and it's been by far the greatest professional experience I've ever had. Like, the audience is amazing. The people I work with are amazing. But, uh, you know, once in a while, uh, and, uh, the Vogue thing came about through some editors there. Um, they, I get asked to do these. And, uh, you know, who says no? Pays good. You get to go to Los Angeles or some cool place. Yeah. Yeah. And and what is, so what is the experience of dealing so the the people you are you are writing about for Vogue magazine putting on the cover biggest stars in the world yeah I'm assuming there are layers and layers of publicity people managers etc that you have to sort of jump through and over to get to the person you want to talk to or is all that arranged for you before you show up I think we need to get the fish in here should I hit myself in the face with a fish if we this is writers look on you writing. can just walk out if you're bored but I'm, <laughs> this is my show and I'm fascinated. <laughs> Um, you know, I listened to your uh, podcast with Chuck Klosterman, who yeah, did, exactly. We're, we're repeating what you did. Said. No, no, Chuck. but but who did as as elegant and well spoken a sort of explanation of this process as anyone. But I've Chuck ever heard. was in Portland, and you're here. In yeah, Manhattan. no, no, no. But I think that, like, you know, I'm sitting there waiting for him to say something like, "That's idiotic." Come on, Chuck. But I agreed with everything he said. I mean, yeah, these are it's structurally different than like sort of a newspaper environment where you know, as he said, newspapers. You're kind of like a one-man band. You do everything, but, you know, oftentimes— By the way, thank you for listening. Uh, yeah, you know, I do what I can. But uh, with Vogue, I mean, yeah, there are layers upon layers, and uh, the cover is chosen, or the subject is chosen before I get involved. Quite frankly, the photography is a wildly significant and time-consuming part of this exercise, which I think a lot of their brain time is uh, spent working on. I mean, if you've ever seen, you know— some of these things that you know Mario Testino or Annie Leibovitz or any number of people who shoot for Vogue have done. That's amazing. It's like a, a movie, a, a small movie, or maybe even a big movie. It maybe. is the thing, right? It and is then, the thing. And then thing. there's an article attached to the pictures. <laughs> and so, like, I'm sort of like, I'm writing the caption to these unbelievably gorgeous photographs. And I know for the people who are, you know, appearing on the cover, I think they're really worried about the picture. Me, less so. You're like, oh, who's this schmuck? But so I get to ride on the caboose of that production. But the, you know, they want to be in the magazine. It's, you know, we're in an era, of course, where we're talking all the time about the diminishment of print media and how things are changing day to day. Uh, Vogue still is a brand that stands for something incredibly significant, uh, still is a very vital magazine, and people want to be on the cover of it. Yeah, every nine months or so, someone from the internet says, hey, you know what? Turns out that Vogue magazine is very successful. (laughs) People like looking at the pictures and they like looking at the ads and we should build our internet business like that. Yeah. Uh, Marissa Mayer was the last one. For me, I think the judgment should always be, I think 
most issues of Vogue you can kill somebody with. You can actually like cause blunt force trauma because they're heavy with enough. a yes <laughs> no because the articles are just so <laughs> <'Cause stern>. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, my writing unfortunately does not cause blood oh maybe it does no but as a physical object a vogue is massive it's like the phone book remember phone books none of those people at your office know what a phone book is pete it's big deal and so you know again i start to get to get right on the coattails of that and go in and talk to these folks and you know Beats Have working. you ever interviewed someone who wasn't really ready for what that – I'm thinking – so there's a story in the last few weeks that Taylor Swift was kicked out of the, the top spot of the, the charts by Cardi B. Oh, do you yeah. know who Cardi B is? I do, yeah. I mean, look how hip we are. Yeah. 240-something dudes sitting, yeah. sitting around. We know who do Cardi you know B is. you Bad Baby? Nope. I thought – I was surprised that Lil Yachty was a person and not like a Simpsons character. I, you know, not only is Lil Yachty a person, but I really like the Lil Yachty. I only know about Lil Yachty from the uh, – well, I knew that he was a person, but I've only heard him on the uh, Captain Underpants soundtrack. Oh, see. Right. So we could I'm do at. a whole Captain Underpants like thing. So good. It's so good. but So good. Uh, I did not know Lil Yachty was affiliated with the Captain Underpants. Good to know. That guy has great taste, Lil Yachty. I, we, we, he went way up in my estimation of him, which was – didn't exist before. So good job, Lil Yachty. You have, you have two <laughs> middle-aged men's endorsement. Congratulations. Yes. yes. Uh, but highly, de- highly desirable, you know. Do you ever meet someone in, when you're interviewing a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce who's not ready for whatever the requirements of the Vogue cover shoot slash interview are? Or at that point, are they already sort of well-established and they know how this operation well, works? Well, those specific instances, uh, they, you know, they're forces of nature. I mean, by the time I spend time with Rihanna and Taylor Swift, Beyonce, certainly. I mean, they were basically phenomenons. They were more like heads of state than they were almost like pop stars. And there was no sort of nervousness about what they were going to say. They knew what they want to say. They've been doing it for a very long time. I can say more globally, and not speaking specifically of Vogue, but you know, in my time writing for other magazines, that when you have a young star, like someone who's just maybe just had their first hit movie or maybe had you know, a rumbling with the tabloids and so on. There's a um, caution about them, which you sometimes really have to like, you know, shake loose and get them to open up a little bit more. And it's made me uh, just personally sort of, I really enjoy talking to subjects who are a little older, who might, uh, you know, have children. So we can sit and talk about Captain Underpants yep. a little bit and get yep. on the level there. And also just have better stories and and, and don't give as much of an F anymore. Um, I read about Britney Spears. Yeah. First right out of the gate for Forbes magazine. Okay. And it was as the like the teenage Britney Spears picked up. Baby hit me one more time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there was so little to extract out of there that I had to pull out the fact that she'd taken her gum out of her mouth and put it next to her her, uh, plate. That was my one bit of color I was able to get. (laughs) It was a pretty good color, actually. Ah, yeah, man. I mean, look, I've had those kinds of experiences too. Um, One person that just sort of uh, offhandedly, Nicole Kidman, I went in with this idea of like her being this sort of regal, you know, um, almost uh, stony actress who yes. was going to not be terribly fun to talk to and is like one of the most fun people to talk to. I will like drink wine with Nicole Kidman anytime. I mean, she is a full pistol, super fun, has lived an extraordinary life already, is doing really interesting things. And not full of herself. I just, you know, you never know exactly what you're going to get going in. I guess that's what, you know, sort of fun about it. Yeah. And even though they know that you're there to write about what they're saying, yeah, you still feel like 
this is actual fun. Capital A, capital F. I do. And maybe like that, I mean, that's evolved over time. I think, you know, I probably had more nerves when I was doing it for the first time. Yeah. And now I have fewer nerves or maybe my nerve endings have just carterized over time and I've just become a terrible person. Who's your Who's your dream interview that you haven't had yet? Oh, man. I have one that I'll tell you off the air because it is my dream interview, but I'm afraid that all you competitive weasels out there are going to steal it. You have a very large audience of, uh, <laughs> of glossy magazine profile writers listening. All right, save. I'm, save, I'm save, trying to save no, it, I'm trying save to no, 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 I'm trying to give you like a more palatable answer. Uh, you know, I would be very curious to interview Justin Bieber again, and I know people at home are rolling your eyes. I can see you, but I interviewed him really, really early in his trajectory. He yeah. was maybe you know he still had the salad bowl Straight haircut. Straight out of YouTube. And there was a lot of attention paid to the hair, you know, contractual attention paid to the hair. Uh, he and I shared a very uh, electrifying uh, uh, SUV ride from uh, Times Square to Camden, New Jersey. Um, That's a long ride. It is a long ride. Yeah. And stopped at McDonald's. You know? <laughs> a lot of, lot of discussion in the car as to whether or not Justin Bieber could be released into the wilds of McDonald's. And in fact, we did drive through a window. But, you know, he's so young, and we talked about hockey most of the time, and he seemed completely ambivalent about stardom and so on, and now this guy has lived, like, this, like, crazy, like, Liz Taylor decade since then, uh, where, you know, it seemed for a while, and his manager recently said, you know, he was really teetering on the edge of oblivion. It'd be funny to revisit that, but, you know, who knows? Maybe right. I should just keep that memory a memory. We're going to end this interview so I can hear about your... That's your, it? Your true, your true 47 minutes. Seems oh, like we've got... I mean, we can do part two where we talk exclusively about lead crafting. <laughs> but maybe we should do that at the journal Chuck to make it Chuck had a big uh, hang-up about, like, beginning the story with the name of the yes. person. He said he doesn't want to see, like, Peter Kafka is picking out a salad. Now, you can't say picking out a salad. I think that picking out a salad is in the magazine celebrity profile... Or any kind of profile, cliche, Hall of Fame, it cannot be used. In fact, I'm in favor of it being a $500 fine. But I don't have that strong an objection to the uh, beginning of the name construction. And Chuck's claim that there would be no confusion to starting a story with he or she because their picture is in the Jennifer Lawrence. Right. You know, I don't know. Again, there's no one way of doing this. You know, I kind of hate... If I can go on a little bit of rant. Yeah. I, 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 one thing that drives me a little bit crazy is when writers, reporters, editors, people in our business, uh, and it is a business. It ain't a craft. It's a business, Pete. It's a hard business. It's, that's why there's SEO headlines. It's, you know, talk about there being one way to do this. I mean, every person that I've met who I, you know, work with, respect, you know, enjoy spending time with has come from a different kind of environment. There is no one classic channel to doing this. And when people ask about, well, what's the way to, you know, get noticed or what's the first job for me or how do I become this? I'm always hesitant to say that there's some sort of formula for doing it. I know it worked for me, uh, which was frankly just like repetition, repetition and hoping to not get fired, uh, which has happened. But I resist the idea that there's one particular way to do this. There's one particular way to write. There's one particular way to tell a story because there's not. And I guarantee you Don't that be boring. That's a good rule. Don't be boring is a good one. I mean, that's more of a – yeah, that's a good one. But I can almost Wait, assure you – Wait, you got a book about rules. I can almost assure you. But there were rules about shaving and yeah, putting yeah, yeah. on your shoes and not this journalism claptrap. 
I can almost assure you that all the people that you like, all the people that you grew up worshiping, all the people that made you want to do this were rule breakers. Yes, and it's, what's great is you can read like the Kirk Vonnegut rules of writing or yeah. the uh, – who's my favorite writer? Brain's broken. Sally Jesse Raphael. No, out of sight and Elmore Leonard. Thank you, oh, Elmore yeah. Leonard. Yeah, sure. That was embarrassing. Yeah, he's got great rules, and you, then you go ahead and ignore them all because they contrast. The Kurt Vonnegut's rules don't set up with That's Elmore right. Leonard's. We're rules. all different, man. We're all different, man. Except we're two middle-aged white guys talking about writing. Who went to Wisconsin? Thanks for Pass coming. Pass the sausage or the brats. Thanks for coming, Jason. Thanks for, for Thank reminiscing. You. I appreciate it. Thanks to you guys. As you know, because some of you come up and tell me, the only thing we ask of you is that you tell someone else about this podcast. That is our only ask. Well, maybe also patronize our sponsors, but do whatever you like. Um, normally, I spend this time thanking our sponsors. I'll do that anyway. Zip Recruiter and Art of Shaving, and I thank many other people. But today is a special day, and I only want to thank Beth O'Connell, my awesome producer, for nearly two years, because Beth is getting married this weekend. So mazel tov, Beth. She's Congrats. smiling. Thank you. DJ our band, Beth. Is it going to be dancing? Beth is writing her own vows as we speak, so her producing's actually gone down a little bit. But if you like this show, Beth is one of the reasons you like it. So thanks again, Beth. Good luck. Thanks to you guys. I will see you next week. Hi, this is Dan Fromer, Editor-in-Chief at Recode. I'm here to tell you about a new project we just launched, the Recode 100, and ask for your help. We're trying to make a list of the people in the tech and business world who made the biggest impact this year, the winners of 2017. Executives, entrepreneurs, movement starters, designers, whoever, primarily in tech media and commerce, but also some of our new focus areas like transportation, policy, and robotics. We'll unveil the full list and throw a big party for the winners later this year, but for now we need your nominations. So if you know someone who kicked ass this year or is a rising star in their field, head to recode.net slash submit by Monday, October 16th to nominate someone and for more information. That's recode.net slash submit.